So Eastertide in the church calendar is meant to be a season for noticing at work in our lives and following the resurrected Jesus. And our readings this morning show us both Peter and Paul on such a learning curve. In Peter's case, you look at your uh, gospel reading, you have you know, those, that famous three times of being asked, you know, do you love me? But I want you to notice that what's followed with, G- with Peter saying yes is that word then. If you love me, then. And this implies, I think, for all followers of Jesus, a fundamental aspect of our discipleship, and that is being God's sent people. In our reading in Acts, we see the same dynamic with Saul or Paul, where he's told, I'll tell you what you must do next. And so all through the scriptures, there's this pattern where God's visitations equal or lead to God's instruction, right? Can you feel that? God's visitations, God's appearing. Often, I'm sure it's not always, but often or most of the time, it leads to some instruction from God. And I think what we see in these two stories with both Peter and Paul is this realization that God is appearing to my life He's catching me up into what he's doing in the earth. This often comes on the back end of really big sin, or even in Peter's case, denial. Now, I can certainly think back to being a teenager. I know it seems hard that I could think back that far, but uh, I can remember being a teenager, and I was a pretty bad person and doing all the pretty bad things that pretty bad teenagers do. And I certainly had no interest in God. I had no interest in church or what he was up up to in the world. But he, in a sense, visited me. And that night, Debbie and I were converted at Calvary Chapel Riverside. And and, uh, at the end of the time, we were given this little um, follow-up book called Ben Born Again's New Believer's Growth Book. And so you're meant to go home and look up these scriptures. And so one of the scriptures that you're supposed to, the first ones were like, I think, scriptures of assurance. And so one of the first scriptures you're supposed to look up was 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, behold, he's a new creation. All the old is gone. Well, I'd never read the Bible before, so I didn't know what the big numbers, I didn't know they meant chapters. I didn't know those little teeny verses meant verses. I had no idea. So I accidentally kept reading. Well, the end of that paragraph says, and it is as if you are Christ's ambassador. So I don't exaggerate in the slightest to say that I stand here today, that the trajectory of my life from that moment, lying in my bed in my apartment in, I don't know, uh, near Cal Poly, (laughs) yeah, in West Covina, lying in that bed, reading this, it set the trajectory of my life. Like God had visited me at Harvest, or at the time, uh, Calvary Riverside, and reading that scripture and seeing that there was a tie-in from that visitation to something that I was meant to be a part of is literally the sort of string that places me here today. Well, probably lots of you can think of your own pre-conversion times. And you may want to hear the psalmist again this morning say, his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Like in one moment, all the really bad stuff I had done is wiped away. But not just His favor lasts for a lifetime. And I want you to consider this morning, what if that favor includes you being caught up in what he's doing? Like, what if that isn't a church guilt trip trying to get you to volunteer to do something? 
You know, what if that isn't like a sort of a Christian parachurch thing that bombards you with, you know, trying to get you to do stuff or do money? You know how we react to all this stuff. What if a part of God's favor is, hey, you get to be about what I'm doing on the earth? And I want to say this morning that I think there's an obvious arc to the whole biblical narrative from the, from the creation in Adam and Eve and what we might call the creation covenant when they're invited to come work with God to Abraham in Genesis 12 where Abraham is visited and told, I'm going to bless you and make you into a great nation. Why? Genesis 12, 3, because you're meant to be a blessing to the whole rest of the earth. When the covenant is being affirmed later in Genesis 18, we hear the same sort of thing where God says, I've chosen Abraham so that he'll direct his children after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what's been promised him. Again, at another really important covenantal time in Exodus 19, God says again, you, Israel, the tribe of Abraham, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I mean, this is just fundamental to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Taking it into the New Testament in Luke 9, Jesus calls the 12 together and gives them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure all diseases and sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. You might think, well, yeah, of course, that was the 12. But one chapter later, with the 70 or the 72, he sends them out again and says, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. In Acts 1, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then finally, now just think, creation covenant, Adam and Eve, humanity, come work with me. And that story I just sort of stitched together for you, all the way to Revelation 22.5, and they will rule and reign with me forever in the new heavens and the new earth. That is what it means to be human in the image of God. Humanity is not defined by what you own or where you live or what you drive or don't drive or where you went to school. Humanity in the image of God means to find our humanness in that story. It means we find our economic situatedness in that story, whatever it might be. And we find the meaning of our gender in that story, whatever your gender may be. You find your marital status within that story whatever it might be. You see, it's that story that takes the incidental particulars of our life and gives them coherence. When one tries to find coherence in an incidental particularity, it almost always leads to a ditch. Because the fundamentalness of me having to be male is not found in some sort of social construct about maleness. It's found in what does it mean to be in the image of God or to be middle class or lower class or upper class. Yeah, all over the earth, people are those sorts of things. But that's not what gives them meaning as a human. What gives them meaning is I take my station and I give it to the purposes of God and humanity. So if that's the story, what then is the faithful response for a follower of Jesus? And I thought this week as I was preparing for this, there's this, uh, it's an occasional prayer, I think, for morning prayer uh, from the Book of Common Prayer that says, preserve us with your mighty power that we may not fall into sin, nor be overcome by adversity, and in all we do, direct us to the fulfilling of your purpose through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what we read in these texts this morning. That's what Peter and Paul were both learning. 
Direct us, Jesus, to the fulfilling of your purpose. And can't you hear Peter in sort of modern language going, really? I got to die some funky death? Really? But direct me, Lord, to the fulfilling of your purpose. And this, of course, calls for a journey of faith, the journey of faith that we're all on. And of course, the person in the Bible who's the most the, the greatest pattern or icon of a journey is, in fact, Abraham. Leave your family and leave your friends and go on this journey where you don't even know where you're going. And so that journey is the journey we all take to find out what it means to be human in the image of God. And I want to say this morning that I have come to believe that that is best done in peace and by being at rest. Now, I can say for myself that there are some days in which that's aspirational, peace and rest, and it's, there are other days in which it's true. But I think that's what we're shooting for. In other words, if our choice is between going on this journey in a, in a kind of a groundedness, a peacefulness, a restfulness, or going on it full of religious guilt or personal shame, it's kind of obvious, isn't it, which, which one of those would best facilitate this journey? So I'm thinking of rest as a posture of the heart, a state of the soul. I can't remember if I've ever said this to you guys. I've said it many other places. But one of the, one of the images I most love about Henry Nouwen's book, The Way of the Heart, is that it's either in the chapter on solitude or silence. I forget which now, but I think it's on solitude, where Henry says that in practicing solitude and silence, we create a space in ourself which we then take into our world. That's what I'm pitching you. It's not that we find in the elements of our life either peace or rest or not, right? Because on any given day, that could be crazy. But Nowen's vision is, and I completely agree, is that in these basic spiritual practices like silence and solitude, it actually creates a space in us, in our heart, in our soul. And then we take that into our life as it actually is. I don't remember when I first said these words to my spiritual director, but it's pretty far back in my journal and I don't think I use this language exactly, but I use something like, something like, I think I'm looking for a life of contemplation and action. And that, of course, at least for me, my first knowledge of that is Evelyn Underhill. And in her book, Underhill says that the mystical state of union with God produces creative action in the world. Did you catch that? Mystical union with God is what creates creative action in the world. For mystics, she says, contemplation and action are not opposites, but two interdependent forms of a life that is one whole. So I want you to hear this morning that we don't have to choose between these two caricatures of a kind of anxious activism on the one hand or an inner navel gazing that doesn't do anything. And as we've said many times over the years, that there is a God-ordained, God-based, grace-based journey inward, think now and in silence and solitude, and a journey outward, and that these two things go peaceably together. Now, I've racked my memory trying to remember where this comes from, but I know that I was on the border in Avari, and we were in a hotel room somewhere, and we were trying to write some statements about spiritual formation, and we were doing it in partnership with um, another group that now I can't remember who they were. But I remember sitting around a table and shaping this statement, and 
I don't know of another, a better way of, of putting how journey inward and journey outward go together. We wrote, as we're formed into the image of the likeness of Christ, we increasingly share God's infinitely tender love for others. In spiritual formation, we precisely deepen in our compassion for the poor, the broken, and the lost. We ache and pray and labor for others in a new way, a selfless way, a joy-filled way. Our hearts are enlarged towards all people and to all creation because this, right? Isn't that the vibe of that whole story from creation to Revelation 24? It's about being with God for the sake of the other. This is what Paul's getting at in Ephesians 2.10 when he said, you're God's handiwork. You're actually created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now, you know, that may have been on a banner at a previous church or something and you felt manipulated by what was happening but please don't let your church experience reduce your understanding of Paul's vision here. You know, a church that might have used this to manipulate people to get them to sign up for Sunday school volunteers or something, okay, that's sad, but that shouldn't inform your reading of this. Our reading of this is the vision of God that we are created in Christ Jesus precisely to be agents of good. You have been given agency, this is why what I said is so important. Whether you're male or female or confused about it or rich or poor or black or white or Mexican, you have agency. You were created to do good works. You have capacity to do it. And that capacity is a part of the gift of our conversion. It, it means that the, the New Testament word is authoritain. It means we've been given authority or the New Testament word for power, we've been given dunamis, we've been given this ability to be with God in this story from creation to Revelation 22. And the only way to be in that story is to have agency. I don't care whether you're 18 this morning or 78, you still have agency. As long as you're alive, this is a part of the reason God gave you a body. Have you ever wondered why you have a body and why God didn't just create a bunch of disembodied people like angels? Because you actually have a different sort of agency than even the angels have. To be human in the image of God means you have a capacity that matches your purpose. You have a body because it matches God's purpose for you. You have a brain. I just had a CAT scan last week. I have a brain. I was like so happy. Wow. <laughs> I came out and said, Debbie, they found a brain. It's part of our agency. So then daily life becomes for us a formational discipline of asking God how we can move more exactly into his kingdom and how we can better welcome and receive it into the fabric of our lives and to do so for the sake of others. So again, I know us, at least I know me and I think I know us, that we've all been on wrong paths like Peter and Paul all of us can think of errors in our life that were selfish or an error or addicted or bound by inner pain or anything else like it. And often I think we're stuck in our spiritual growth because of shameful memories. And I just know again how mine, my mind works. The self-talk that re reminds me constantly of old failings or maybe of old wounds. It's like we've got malware running in our brains, right? But in this room probably, all of us have also seen the light. We've discovered our faults, maybe not in as historic or dramatic ways Peter and Paul, 
but we've had that experience. And I want you to note in the, in the story of Peter and Jesus, how Jesus goes right to the heart of Peter's pain and how he goes not as an accusation, not to embarrass Peter, not to punish him, but he goes there for a revelation. I mean, come on, feel this. You, you're Peter, and you denied Jesus three times, and you looked across the courtyard, and your eyes locked with him, and in that split second, you realized, oh my God, I did it. The cock is crowing, and I did it. I denied him three times. But Jesus knows in that moment, Peter, it's okay. I'll see you on the beach. We'll have a little breakfast. It'll all be okay. Remember, Jesus had actually said to him, don't worry, Peter, I'll pray for you. Remember that? But Peter in that moment just feels guilt and shame and horror that he could have done such a thing. And on the beach, he's not condemned. He's not made to feel guilty or ashamed. He's reminded three times, I do love the Lord. I just didn't have the, the internal capacity to execute on my love. And that's what Jesus knew that he didn't know. I don't think Jesus doubted that he loved him. Jesus knew that he didn't have the internal structure of desires to execute on that love, that when push came to shove, Peter would execute on what was actually most important to him, and that was his safety. Makes perfect sense. I don't judge Peter for it. But again, this is what Jesus knew. But on the beach, that all deepens. And it's like in his commissioning, in his discovering of what it means to be human in the image of God, as Peter's recommissioned with these three affirmations of, Lord, you know I love you. He gets the then. Then feed my sheep. And oh, by the way, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're not going to have the most pleasant death. And I just want you to imagine here in this moment that Jesus, you know, John 10, the good shepherd, he's sharing his own ministry with Peter. Now, I don't know who in this room could look me in the eye and said, you've ever done anything worse than Peter. And therefore, I say back to you, Jesus trusts you. I don't care how much LSD you did or, you know, what you're sexual background was, Jesus trusts you. He's willing to trust you. He's willing to actually entrust his ministry to you. I imagine the grace, the forgiveness, the trust that Jesus is putting in untrustworthy Peter. I mean, if Thomas is doubting Thomas, why isn't Peter untrustworthy Peter? And and Jesus is precisely trusting him. Well, why? What's happened here? Well, what's happened here is that Jesus' cross has taken away Peter's sin. Peter's living into, in John 21, what John wrote in John 1.1, or in 1.5, when he said, the light has shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So what you're meant to picture here is the very light of Almighty God who said, let there be light. That light has now penetrated into Peter's heart, taken his actual love for Christ and exploded in him a power through which he can now execute on that love. And he can go out and be the kind of person that we read about in First and Second Peter and that we read about in the book of Acts. How does he become the kind of person who has the courage for the first time to stand up in front of a hostile audience and say, this is what's going on here, right? It's Peter who gives, as far as we know, the very first Christian sermon. 
So the guy who chickens out in the garden stands in front of this enormous crowd who could have done anything to him and says, this is what's real. Well, why? Because the light of God had shined into that bit of darkness in his heart that made him, at one point in his life, prefer safety over following God. And so these stories, again, we read them in Eastertide because they're patterns, they're icons, they're models. That this is all still true, that Jesus still calls, he still feeds, he still empowers imperfect people in ministries. And usually, again, I know this is the case for me, usually it's only in hindsight that we see the hand of God at work. I mean, I can only tell you that story from West Covina in 1976, because in hindsight, I now know what it meant. I didn't know what it meant at the time. And I could tell lots of other stories that I only notice in hindsight the hand of God at work in my life. And so I often say it to myself. I have a little coin that a friend gave me uh, a few, uh, well, it's been a long months ago now, um, when I announced my retirement. It's just a little coin that says, finish strong. And I've got one on my office here in Costa Mesa, and I've got one in my office at home. And at least once a day, sometimes several times a day, I just hold it to my heart and say, finish strong. Just step by step, little by little. That, that's your journey. Again, whether you're 78 or 18, that's your journey. It's just step by step, little by little. Just keep going, and you'll look back, and you'll see what God's been doing in your life. So you may hear these stories this morning of Peter and Paul and think, you know, I am closer to 78 than 18, and it's kind of hard to teach old dogs new tricks, and I get that. I worry for myself. But there's nothing in your age not even if you think you're too young, that limits God's ability. Did you catch that? You might have less ability at 78 than you did at 18. But that does not limit God's ability to act through you as an agent of change for the good of others. And the reason this is true is that conversion and calling have their roots in God's capacity, not ours. So just welcome him. You know, sit on the beach with him, welcome him, and just say yes to being his chosen instrument in your life and in your times. So as we have a quiet moment now, I invite you to think with me, holding in our heads these stories of Peter and Paul. Maybe you could take a moment this morning to call to mind if you can, to name it if you can. Do you have a main error in your life? You know, for Peter, it was his denial. For Paul, he was persecuting the church. Is there like a main habit, a, a, a habit of your heart, a, a bent of your will that's a main error? Just notice it and name it. And then hear God being at work in your life. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts for a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing in your conversion and hearing your call again, it comes in the newness of a morning.